And, you know, there's a lot of people who are super smart and they're not likable. Um, yeah. You know, when what? So the question is, why do you need to be likable? Mm-hmm. And then how do you become likable? So, so yeah. I think why you need to be likable is because, first of all, that's how you get hired. Yeah. Right. Mo- most people, they're hiring people. They're not, you know, as I mentioned before, like to get into this industry, a lot of people look the same. Yeah. Right. But not everybody gets through the interview process. Like you yeah. check the box and yeah, you have the technical skills, but do you want to sit next to this person for 10 yeah. hours a day? Yes. Like, is this person going to make your life, you know, stressful, more stressful, you know, less stressful? Yeah. So it's important to be likable because people like to work with and, and hire people that they would like to work with. Welcome to the Leaders of Tomorrow podcast. My name is Chris Thompson, your host of the show and the head coach of the Student Works Management Program. This is a show dedicated to young and ambitious entrepreneurs and ultimately the leaders of tomorrow. Each week, we will bring you an inspiring interview or message to help you create the future you know you deserve. Let's get started. Hey, leaders. I've got a fantastic opportunity uh, today to have Garth Friesen, uh, who is the portfolio manager, uh, formerly the CEO as well of Triple I Capital Management. So uh, a hedge fund in Boca Raton, Florida. He worked in our our program, you know, 30 years ago, uh, University of Western Ontario grad. And uh, uh, shout out Joe McLean for reconnecting me. Uh, who was also in a pod earlier, and Garth and I just have a fantastic conversation. Um, he he wrote a book, "Bite the Ass Off a Bear," and he basically talks in the book about how to get involved in the financial industry, uh, in investment banking, and the types of uh, ways that you need to think, how to how to get the job, and then how to keep the job and excel. I uh, read the book and loved the book, and I some of the conversations or, or or points or stories that I really loved, I, I brought up in our conversation today, you know, one particular one where he had a hundred million dollar trading day, profit trading day. So highly recommend this uh, podcast. I know you're really going to enjoy it. And uh, you know what we're up to finding amazing young leaders. So if you know anyone, please send them our way to studentworks.com, share this podcast, or send me an email at cthompson at studentworks.com. Have a fantastic day. Thanks so much. So Garth, welcome to the Leaders of Tomorrow podcast. So happy to have you here. Thank you, Chris. Good to see you again. Yeah, no, it's just it's just awesome. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm really thankful for Joe for, for reconnecting us, Joe, Joe McLean, who was, who, uh, who was on the podcast. And I know a, a, a real good friend of yours uh, from back at Western and, and student painters in the day. Yep, goes back probably uh, thirty years. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So, tell me what you were like before our program. Before this, the what the was student then, works, the AAA student painters, AAA student painter program. Yeah, yeah. So I was, um, you know, probably not that atypical from any other university student. Yeah. I was nineteen years old. Yeah, you know, taking a bunch of classes, which I had no idea what the relevance was for. Right. And, um, you know, just, I had some ideas what I wanted to do in life, but you know, those were usually centered around the, the traditional professions that everybody, uh, you know, chooses or looks at, right. Like right. at some point I wanted to be an astronaut, right. Okay. Uh, okay. 
wanted to be in med school and right right so I, I, you know so pretty pretty typical you know starting out in college like you know you you're very uh, you think you're pretty bright you've got a lot of book smarts but probably not not a lot of skills uh, outside of that. And I I have a, a son who's going to college next year. Right. And um, you know, it's uh, I see some of the similar characteristics. Right. Absolutely. Very, uh, very knowledgeable in some ways, but you know, still lots to learn when it comes to uh, comes to life. Yeah, and just kind of where you want to target your efforts. Right. That was a big a big piece as well. Right. And so, you know, uh, just. Uh, you know, how did you find, how did you find your experience in running, running your own business 30 years ago? Well, it's, you know, it's obviously pretty challenging and, you know, I didn't go looking for the business, um, so to speak. It was like my friends were, this is how I got into it. And maybe I've never told you the story, Right. my friends were doing it. So I'm going to do it, which, you know, which is, <laughs> which is uh, a lot of way things happen when you're, when you're, uh, when you're young. Um, yeah. and so it was, uh, it was an eye opener. It was yeah. definitely an eye opener going from where when you when you thought of what your job was as a student it was to go to class and you know you know read the stuff that's assigned practice for your tests and right you know that's your job is to do well in school it was so different going into you know i guess they call it a real job right yeah. where it's it's not about school it's just totally different skills that were required so it was it was it was yeah really challenging i had a tough first year i really right. did yeah, no, I remember you saying that in our last conversation. And obviously decades ago, it's a long, it's a long time to remember, you know, each person's experience. But I remember you were a multi-year operator and really successful in your second year, which sometimes, sometimes will happen. It's it's I know for me, my 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 first year was much really, really challenging and just and not really really super profitable. And then figured it out. Okay, got it. You know. Yeah, I'd I'd like to be able to blame it on the territory, but yeah. uh... <laughs> You gave me a bum territory the first year, but I, you know, in, in hindsight, it was, you know, just the part of doing business is the the school of hard knocks, right? Yeah. And, and the learning. Yeah. So what do you, do you, is there anything you still rely on from the program? Uh, yeah. You know, there's definitely a um, certain themes that I looked at. I still have very, you know, strong memories of, you know, what went right and what went wrong in the, in that first program. But the thing that jumps out to me now is, uh, you know, maybe, and it didn't jump out to me at the time, right. was the focus on profits instead of revenue. Right. Um, yes. You know, at, at, at the time, it was just, you know, how do I get the sale, right? And you do absolutely any, anything to get the sale. And then, you know, you figure out uh, how to make money afterwards, which isn't necessarily the best way to do it. 100%. Um, so I would say it's a focus more on, uh, you know, in, in the business world, as, you know, aside from a bunch of other lessons. but. Um, I, I would say it was the focus on the bottom line as opposed to just getting revenue. One hundred percent. And I and I must say as well as a, as a company, obviously we're a whole lot better better decades decades later, you know. And 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 you know, there's a a, a natural compulsion I think from new people running a business. You know, it's it's like you know the focus on the revenue t- number where where you know our number one key sort of. Uh, commandment in the business is help operators make money because they're just so much more likely to cut the price or to, you know, it, you know, just to, just to get the job. And we're like, no, there's lots of jobs. It's, it's let's, let's make sure we're running a really profitable business. So, so those are things that we've really gotten better at. Um, right, because, because I remember there was, there used to be a focus on revenue. That's how you would get your quarterly, whether it's a target yes, uh, revenue yeah. or whether it's the top operators, 
you know, I know e- revenue is easy to measure, but, you know, and without revenue, you don't get profits. Yes. But, you know, revenue cannot, you can also get uh, losses. Losses with just revenue. Yes, exactly. And I think, I think the reality is always revenue. There's going to be a, there's going to, in a high charging, uh, high growth business, people are going to be focused on that. That's why the senior management team needs to focus on profit, you know, until people are clear enough that that's what they're focused on too. And of course, they're still focused on revenue, as you mentioned, because, because that's an important part of the, the profit dilemma. So, you know, I know the the big thing that I'm interested in having a conversation with you about is the the whole investment investment world. And and I and I know I'm going to recommend your book, Bite the Ass Off of Bear, getting in and standing out on a hedge fund trading floor. And and I loved it, as I told you earlier. But why don't we jump into, you know, coming out of Western, you know, how you looked to get involved in in, in the financial industry and, uh, et cetera, you know, early stages, you know, after student, student painters, student works. Yeah. So I, I had to switch gears in university from, uh, you know, one that was geared more in sciences. I did actually start in with a path to try to get into the world of medicine. I quickly realized that it wasn't something that I wanted to do something I liked studying, but not something that I wanted to do every day. Right. And, um, I was fortunate enough to be with a, uh, a group of, group of people as friends that were were pretty motivated and thinking about life after university. And one of them who was a year or two ahead of me went to work on Wall Street. Right. And um, you know, when you're living in your small little bubble of university, you don't really think about what the world is like, you know, outside of your city, outside of your country. But th- this guy had somehow, you know, from University of Western Ontario, managed to get himself as an undergrad a seat on Wall Street, and it was right. just intriguing. As I just remember the day he found out, I was like, "How did you get that?" Right. Like, how could like you? What? Like, why? He was a bright guy, very, very smart. Was it Guy uh, Metcalf? No, uh, JP Bailey. Oh, okay, J- uh, yeah, JP also did our program. So yeah, yeah, JP yeah. also did the program, and yeah, you know, through his you know, outstanding abilities to sell himself. And he was obviously super bright. He managed yeah. to get a job and um, a good one. And he did and really well. <laughs> really well. And that yeah. kind of motivated me to try to get into that industry. Mm-hmm. And um, so I tried. And yeah. unfortunately, you know, JP's skills were much greater than mine at the time. Right. And um, so they only, I couldn't get onto Wall Street, but I did get a job in the industry at a small Japanese bank in Toronto. Okay. And it was only like 30 people there, but it was, it was a start. I was in, right. right. Got, got the foot in the door and spent a couple of years there. And it, it didn't take long. It was really a question of, you know, three, six months before I realized that in order to, to move up in the organization. And I think, in, and I realized in the industry as well, I just needed more skills. Right. So I, I went back to do my MBA also back at Western. Okay. And you did and, that um, full time? Full time. Okay. Okay. Yep, I worked for a couple of years, then went back and um, did did the two year MBA, and it was much much easier the second time around going to university than the first, even though the MBA was uh, more challenging. But went in with a goal, right? Yes. Knowing what I wanted to achieve, know I want know what I wanted to use the degree for, and immediately started recruiting and trying to get the job. So it was, um, you know, a little easier in that respect. It was obviously, it's, it's a more difficult program, but right. uh, that, that, that was the transition into the industry. And from there, a lot of the, you know, fortunately the school had a pretty good reputation and still does 
with a lot of the, the American firms and they were recruiting up at Western. And so that was the, the connection into, into the U.S. And so how, how, how tough was your second access into the, into the financial markets and getting a job? How tough was that? Well, it was, uh, it was easy access to finding out who was recruiting and, and, and it, as long as you were doing well in school and you had a pretty good resume, you could get access to the interviews, right? You could, you could get, you knew who was hiring, right? but getting through the door was, was tough, right? right. Like you have to go through a lot of interviews. Like I think just to get my job at, at Merrill, I think I went through 12 interviews. So it was a lot. And right. you know, a lot of firms and some, all you need is just one person out of those 12 to say, yeah, I don't like this guy or I don't, I don't like this person Right. to, to ding you. Right. And right. one ding is enough to, uh, to set you back. So it, it was, it was a tough process. And so a lot, a lot of it was, and when you think about the path to, uh, to get into some of these places, it's like you, you may be the top dog or in the top 5% of your college, right? Your university, yeah. but you're competing against hundreds of other schools. Yeah. And so you have to really find a way to distinguish yourself and separate yourself um, to stand out because when you, when you get, and the, the field gets narrower and narrower when you're going through the interview process, right? We'll yeah. interview people from Western yeah. and then interview the people from, you know, the, from Ontario, then we'll interview yeah. the people from Canada, then we'll, you'll go down to the U S and you know, it just gets narrower and narrower and it's just gets harder and harder to, to stand out. So it was, it was a challenge by no means was it easy. And, no. um, I, I don't think it's gotten any easier. If, oh, if anything, harder, if, if anything, harder, harder. And so yeah. you know, figuring out a way to differentiate yourself is, you know, always a challenge. And I remember you told a really fun story, uh, or I found it fun, uh, about your interview, uh, in, in, in the book. Could you recount that? That was one of the Merrill interviews, actually. It was, yeah. uh, one of the more critical ones. Cause that was the, it was the very first one. This is what, when, when they come to campus. And uh, I, I guess they, they get 100 resumes, they pick yep. 15 of them, and then they'll invite three down for the next round. Yes. And, um, you know, so you only have, and a lot of these interviews, like, quick, pretty quick, you've got yep. maybe 15, 20 minutes to make your impression, and then yep. and you're out of there. And the next, next person, and they're interviewing 30 people. And so... I, and I remember once I was in the industry, having looking back on these days, and it's easy to forget who one person was. They all kind of totally. blended. They're all smart. They're yes, all in super all great finance courses. Yeah. They're all in the investment club. They yeah. all look very similar. And so you only have 15 minutes. And I remember in the in the interview, the the guy picked up his picked up my resume and was was looking at it. It was like, uh, and one of the activities I was doing was I did Kempo karate and yeah. you know, other martial arts. And you, you list these little things in the activity section, which you think are pretty irrelevant, right? Who's going to pick up on this? It's, you know, certain activities. He goes, Kempo Karate. Uh, so you think you're a tough guy, huh? It was like, this is the first question he gives me, right? And uh, said, well, I wouldn't say that. No, I take it for exercise. It's good enjoyment. Yeah, we're learning some skills. And he's like, have you ever had to use it in a fight? I'm like, maybe once. And he's like, tell me about it. Tell me a fight story. And so here we are, I'm looking at my, my watch thinking, it's like, where's this going? Like, you know, I wanted to come into this interview and talk about my, you know, eatingness for finance. Class, and yes. <laughs> yeah. All these courses I'm taking, why I'm good for the, good for the job. And I ended up taking a 10 minute detour with a story of how I was out in 
one of the neighboring towns. It was out late, and yeah. you know, there was a little <clears throat> bit of a battle for a taxi, and a fisticuffs erupted, and what I did in it. And I, I guess I got carried away telling the story. And at the end, it's just like, what the hell did I just do? I've just right. spent 10 minutes telling this guy how about I got in a, a late night bar fight as opposed to all my you know, reasons why they should hire me. And on the resume, he was just like joking around. I don't know whether he was joking out. He wrote in the bottom of the resume, like taking little notes, knock guy out with left jab. Okay. And then it's just like, anything else you want to tell me? We only got a couple minutes. And so I'm rushing, you know, to try to just do the full data dump. Yeah. Of everything. I know why they should hire me. And I walked out thinking I, I blew it. It's like, never again am I going to get sucked down that path, right? I got to go in with an agenda. And it turns out they called me back for the for the next yeah. round of interviews. And, you know, a couple of years later, the, the fellow who interviewed me was still part of Merrill. And I asked him why he, like, how did I get through the interview? And he says, honestly, because I remembered you. I remembered yeah. your story. Like everybody else looked identical and you know you, you seemed to like you had every all the other skills that everybody else did so yeah it was just a fun conversation so yeah no funny funny I, I and put you through and also as well just you know look at you you're you're so you're so uh subdued and i'm not surprised uh garth you also i got from the fight you that someone was being really rude with a lady friend that evening and and that that's what actually sparked the uh the engagement so so i will speak to that Right. Thank you. <laughs> oh, she was not happy with that, right? I'm sure. I'm sure. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Didn't have no, many friends that no, no friends. No friends. So, you know, tell us about early on in your career and sort of next stages with, uh, you know, working, working up, you know, further along in your career. Yeah. So uh, once I got in, you know, just going, going back to the story of how I got into the firm. Yeah. Um, you know, then it was, you know, it, it was, it was tough. That was equally stressful. Like there's so much focus. This is one of the reasons why I wrote the book and there's really uh, two parts to the book. It's mm-hmm. the first battle is getting into the industry. Yeah. Right. And there's a lot of things that, you know, tips that I could give and talk yeah. about how to, how to try to get in. Um, some of them are specific to finance. Some are more general. Yes. But once I realized this, once you are in, you know, after about the, you know, the, the couple day euphoria wears off of I've, I've, I've made it, I've gotten in, I've got my dream job. Mm-hmm. And the realization sets in that, you know, you're starting at the bottom again, right? Yes. You're starting yes. from scratch. Yeah. You're a nobody. Everybody else around you is as good or better on paper than you are. And, um, you know, you gotta, you gotta prove yourself. And, you know, what that means is, you know, part of it is just making sure that every job you do, you got to do it well. And, you know, it's, you know, it, people talk about it. It's like you're, if you're getting coffee for somebody, it's just make sure you get the coffee order right. Yes, <laughs> yes. It starts with that. You're, you're, you think when you're getting hired, all you have to do, like you're, there's such an emphasis on your skills and how you're going to make money for the firm, and you're you're a great hire. But then they start you, and you know you're doing these very low level jobs uh, to begin with, and it's just recognizing that, you know, that's just part of it. And yes. so. I went through the process. I, I worked at, at, at the, the Wall Street firm for uh, a couple of years. I switched over to UBS, which was a rival firm. And the, the way that a lot of people end up switching jobs, your boss leaves and then yes. hires you yeah. um, at the competing firm. Uh, and then one of the customers that we did business with, I was on a, a swaps desk where we were you know, providing, we were making markets, providing liquidity for uh, hedge funds. Right. And one of the customers that we did business with uh, was looking for somebody to join the firm, and I was introduced to that to that client 
by the salesperson who covered the account and they made the connection. And at the time, uh, UBS was being taken over by Swiss banks. So there was a little bit of turmoil at the bank of, you know, how many, how many people were going to stay, who's going to go. And so I had the opportunity to leave and, uh, and I did, and I've, I've been here ever since it's, uh, it's been 23 years now. Wow. Wow. And, and I know as well, you had a, a unique start there and then a big opportunity in Europe or sorry, far East. Maybe you could speak through, speak, speak to that, your experience at, and what, what, what do you call it? Capital management. Sorry. Triple I capital management. Triple I capital management. Okay, cool. Yeah. So I think what you're referring to is an opportunity um, really well while I was at UB. Yes. It was before I came to triple I going to Hong Kong. Okay. Okay. Yeah. That was uh, just one one of these situations where there was a, um, I just got back from vacation, you know, I had a week off and I got a tap on the shoulder and from the, the head of the, the trading desk who said, we need you to go on a trip. Right. And it was like, well, okay, when, right. It was like, well, we need you to go to Hong Kong and, you know, you know, we need you to go right away. It's like, when, like tonight. And he's like, yeah, that works. <laughs> and so I was on a plane to Hong Kong to try to, you know, decipher and look through a portfolio, what was uh, then a rogue trading situation where people had put some bad trades in a, in a portfolio and they were somewhat hidden from the risk system. Right. And, uh, you know, spent six months in Hong Kong trying to unwind a portfolio of crazy, crazy derivatives. But, you know, what at Triple I here, I've done a number of different things. I started out as a trading assistant to somebody on um, trading government bonds. Right. Traded Danish mortgages of all things. I've traded uh, U.S. mortgages. I started a credit business here in 2005. Um, traded high yield derivatives, high yield uh, bonds, investment grade bonds. We trade a lot of other types of structures here as well. Equities, FX. Uh, we do a lot of volatility trading, a lot of relative value trading, and so it's just continue to do do new things and explore new markets that's the good thing about financial markets it's you know there is the opportunity to you know switch to different products different geographies um, and continually learn and develop and get a better understanding and the longer you do it the more you realize how the dots are all connected right so you know when you first start you don't really see the connections and how they're all interlinked but you know after a while you you, you get the benefit of having done all those you know, going a mile deep in every one in a number of different areas, as opposed to just trying to learn it all initially and uh, at a at a rudimentary depth. Right, and and I know one of the things I know I asked you earlier, and I and I really liked having that understanding is the difference between a a hedge fund, you know, I guess a trader, and then a portfolio manager, which which you were for a, a number of years, or I guess are are you are. Are you now because you were the CEO and now, oh, now you're back to be a portfolio manager. Yeah, now I'm back managing a portfolio again. Yeah. And so what the differences is and how you need to think about those, those differences. Yeah. So I think, you know, a, a, a trader versus a PM, I think maybe the audience understands the difference, but um, a PM is a collection of trades. Right. right? And, and so you, you always have our thinking as a portfolio manager of what are your residual exposures? Like what is your, you know, exposure to the macro economy, you know, and a lot of portfolio management comes down to, is it, as I mentioned, is a collection of trades, right. but the differentiating factor is the sizing, right? right. Which ones go in, which ones don't go in, 
which ones go in at, 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 uh, at, at a large size versus a small size, how much of a hedge do you need, if any hedge, whereas trading is a lot more of individual opportunities, they're on, they're off, and a, and a, and a trader can be flat. Right. right. You can choose when you want to be in the market, when you want to be out of the market. Portfolio managers, you're always running some sort of risk. And it's right. just a question of managing the risk, balancing the risks um, versus, you know, I, w- I want to take this exposure and then I want to take it off. Right. There's a different and it's a different skill set. Right. It's definitely a different skill set. Uh, you know, some people are really good at managing individual trades and and going you know, knowing their area very well, uh, PMs tend to have to have more breadth, right? As well, and it, and sometimes it can be scary because when you're a trader in a particular market, you really feel like your edge is being on top of the flows, right? Being on top of the dynamics of the market, what's driving certain relationships. You're talking to people in that very narrow. Uh, vertical all the time. Right. Whereas with the PMs, you just can't do that in all the different segments of the market. And so you have to rely on other people a little bit to give you the information. And so you have to be able to decipher what's important, what's not important, what are the main drivers. And so it's uh, it's almost, you're, you're a little more of a generalist as a PM versus the expert, which is the trader. And sometimes people's skill sets are you know more geared to one versus the other. Oh, that's interesting. And, and so, you know, one thing you talked about, um, in your book was EQ versus IQ. How, how do you see that in, in, in the trading world? Well, I think it's not just the trading world, but I think it's the, the real whole, world, yeah, real world, any job and, you know, finance is no exception is the, and, 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 we, and I've seen it now having the benefit of hiring a lot of people and mentoring a lot of people, uh, training people, and unfortunately having to let people go. Yes. Um, that, you know, there's not a shortage of IQ in this industry. Like yeah. I can tell you that. There's a lot of smart people. Yeah. There can be a shortage of EQ. Yes. Uh, meaning, you know, they just don't have the right soft skills yeah. or they're too impatient with their career. They think they're so smart, everybody else has got to be stupid. Yeah. Uh, that they're better off working alone as opposed to working in a team. They don't feel like they need to communicate or share or help or mentor. And, you know, when people think of trading, you know, they think of it as a solo sport, but, you know, a lot of times, you know, and certainly there are traders that just need to operate and can operate by themselves. But in the vast majority of firms that trade professionally, it's a team environment, right? Whether that's a small team or that's a large team Mm -hmm. and, you know, all the things that you have to have all these EQ components to get along with the team, you know, have to apply, right? Whether it's you know, integrity, doing what you say you're going to do, you know, helping somebody else without asking for something in return, you know, just thinking about the firm before you think of yourself. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of these issues that come up and at the end of the day, trading is a business. Investing is a business too. And with a business, you have a need for these soft skills. And I think it's sometimes left out that all I need to be is a quant. Yeah. And, and, you know, again, like there are jobs where all you need to be is a quant. Yeah. But that's not the majority of jobs. Exactly. Exactly. And and if you, and if you ultimately um, get to the point where you're a business owner, then you're definitely needing the EQs because you're hiring, you're letting people go, you're mentoring, you're training, you've got all these other issues that have to come into play where, you know, you may be a quant 
early stages, but if you keep rising up in the industry to get to a management or a leadership role, you can't, you're not going to get very far without some of these soft skills. Yeah. Those are, those are EQ skills. Absolutely. Um, and so, so, you know, I know you, you referred in the book to, to Dale Carnegie as one strategy to improve your EQ, you know, uh, maybe you could speak to that and any, any other ways to, 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 to improve that in that area. Yeah. You know, and so it's like, I think there's a lot of, a lot of books are written about this, you know, there's a lot can be said and Dale Carnegie's one of them that, mm -hmm. you know, he highlights, you know, ways to win friends and influence people. And it sounds yeah. like a very uh, gratuitous title, right? But, yeah. you know, you could rephrase what, what's inside there is just how to get along with people. That's Absolutely. what it really means. Yeah. And um, I think a lot of it is how to be likable. Yes. And, you know, there's a lot of people who are super smart and they're not likable. Um, yeah. You know, when, what, so the question is, why do you need to be likable? And then how do you become likable? So yeah. I think why you need to be likable is because first of all, that's how you get hired. Yeah. Right. Most people, they're hiring people. They're not, you know, as I mentioned before, like to get into this industry, a lot of people look the same. Yeah. Right. But not everybody gets through the interview process. Like you yeah. check yeah. the box and yeah, you have the technical skills, but do you want to sit next to this person for 10 yeah. hours a day? Yes. Like, is this person going to make your life you know, stressful, more stressful, you know, less stressful. Yeah. So it's important to be likable because people like to work with and, and hire people that they would like to work with. Yeah. Um, how you become likable. Now that's a different set of issues. And I think a lot of it is just not being so self-centered, you know, yeah. paying attention when people are talking to you, having good, you know, the, these are the, basically the skills that you learn as <laughs> growing up. Yes. You know, the, mom and dad the, taught you. The, yes. Mom and dad are hopefully teaching you, right? <laughs> and, and that they actually apply and yeah. you know, not being rude. And, you know, and, and this is again, not finance. This is any, any industry, any business, mm -hmm. um, you know, to just you know, make sure you get along with people. And yep. that, that's such a big thing. And I've seen people come and go in this industry largely because they just don't get the joke. Right. Yeah. That, you know, it's a team, right? Yeah. Everybody's working for the same thing. And, yeah, it's an individual performance business sometimes. Yeah. But, uh, you know, like baseball, right? There's a time for individual performance and there's a time for teamwork. And yeah. people who can't get that aspect of teamwork, you know, don't last very long. Yeah. Right? Or, or don't don't have careers. They have jobs. Yeah. Yes. That's a great, great point. Yeah. And, and then also it's just, you know, it's like when something bad happens, how do they handle it? You know, can they kind of just, you know, go with it? Or there's all sorts of anxiety and bad feelings and emotional turbulence rather than, oh, it's, oh now we'll get this next one or whatever, you, sorry, whatever the senior people say, right? And this, okay, I, this is the culture. This is how they handle this stuff, you know, but understanding, like you said, they don't get the joke, right? It's really important to get, to get, to get along, right? Yeah. And, and the longer you're in the, um, you know, and I, I, and I, I get it too, right? Like when you're first starting, it's just, there's so much pressure to perform. It's easy to forget some of these things, but, yeah. you know, after you've been around for a little while and you look around at the people around you, you realize how important it is, right? Like, yeah, there's, it's like, like any industry, like any job, it's, um, it's pretty intense and there's, yes. there's a lot of ex high expectations, but that doesn't need to come at a cost of pissing people off or upsetting people, right? Because it's, yeah. you know, that's a, that's a good way to, you know, get yourself you know, left behind when it comes time for promotions or, 
ultimately not included in opportunities to grow, um, yeah. to grow in the firm. Yeah. Yeah. And I know, I know early on there was a, there was a breach of, there was a, a math error that you had that, that was, uh, you know, pretty, you know, real standout really stood out for me. Maybe you could tell that story. Yeah. Well, I wish I could say it was higher level math error, yes. but it was pretty basic, right? <laughs> I, I, th- I think it was a question of, you know, multiplying instead of dividing. Right. And, um, you know, it turned out to be pretty costly for the, for the firm, you know, at the time as a, as a, you know, somebody was new and this is while I was at the, at the hedge fund, you know, losing a $120,000 of the partner's money, you know, in about an hour, wow. you know, was, you know, not something that wasn't even our investors capital. This was on an individual, a, a separate, separate trade I was doing was, right. it was pretty stressful. And it was just a quick, you know, didn't double check my work, you know, was in a bit of a rush, yeah. um, you know, probably should have known better. It wasn't a conceptual error. It was just a, an error made by carelessness. Right. And, um, you know, it, and I'm sure you've had this feeling before of, when when you a piece of bad news comes that you weren't like your your heart literally it drops False. right you start yeah. to sweat you can't think straight yeah once you know you've made this error yeah it, it's traumatic and and I and I the instinct is like how do I fix this right yeah. and yes part of that instinct is can I fix it without anybody knowing yes yes <laughs> and uh, you know sometimes yes sometimes no in this case there was. Uh, you know, I, I I quickly realized that there was no fixing this uh, without the loss, um, and there was no fixing this without you know bringing it to the attention of other people. And so I, I grabbed the senior partner whose money I just lost. Yeah, and uh, just said, hey, "I've got a problem. Here's my mistake. This is what I did wrong. The, the, here's here's our two options to get out of this. We can right. you know ride the position. It was just a mishedge. It was that yeah. the wrong position, or we could just cut it now and take the take the loss." So just take the loss. And at that point, you know, I executed the unwind and lost the money. And I was just waiting for the, the rest of the data and for that, for that tap on the shoulder. It's like, okay, yeah. now this is all over. Let's go to my office and yeah, you know, we're gonna we're gonna get rid of you. Yeah. Right. And so I got the tap on the shoulder, takes me to the office yeah. and uh, sits me down. And I was, you know, immediately start apologizing. And and um, you know, it turns out that. You know, I, I, I said to him, "This is like so. I guess you're going to fire you or fire me, right?" Right. And uh, he said, "Fire you," because I just spent one hundred and twenty thousand dollars training you. <laughs> I'm not going to fire you. So just make sure you don't ever do that again. Check your work. We went through all the things that I yeah. the reasons why I made this mistake. Gave me a few ways to try to prevent it from happening again. Yeah. Yeah. Sent me back, and you know, it was a relief. It just goes goes to show you the character of somebody like that. Yes. And I'm not saying that's. You're not going to get fired for doing that. No, right? for sure. I could yeah. have been right, and uh, maybe I should have been. But it in some cases, sp- this is where you're saying you have to keep learning and. Bounce it back. also speaks to the character, though, because you know you told a story earlier about having to go and unwind rogue traders, uh, you know, trades, you know, so that that traders have this opportunity to run side bets and do things that 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 are out of integrity. So you were tested and you passed in, in the, the integrity. And so, so that speaks to something, I think. Yeah, I, I, I think so. And it's, and it's so easy and I'm not saying you don't have to be a bad person to make this mistake. Yes, for it's sure. Error judgment that, yeah. you know, momentarily that 
could turn a small problem into a big problem. Like this is how these rogue trader things happen. They don't they don't start out as being rogue traders, right? Yes. Yeah. They start out by making a little mistake, losing a little bit of money, and rather than, you know, coughing it up as a as a mistake, say, like, oh, I'm just going to hang on to it. It'll come back. Yeah. And it turns into a bigger one. Then they start breaking the law to cover up things. Yes. And then you know it just this downward spiral of you know, one bad little decision turns into the ending of a career. And yes. you know, I guess I, people work hard to get into these situations where they can have a book to trade. And, yeah. you know, they they realize that, oh, if I, if I make this mistake, I'm going to lose my opportunity. So, you know, going back to what I was saying earlier, it's like, I'm going to try to cover it up. Yes. Right? Or hope no, nobody finds out. And, you know, it's these little decisions, which, you know, maybe you could get away with that once, but yeah, if it's your personality to, cover up as opposed to address a problem, eventually they come back and it's whether that's a trade or any other problem that you're dealing with. Oh yeah. It doesn't go away. No. And there's 100%, right? Like we are apt to lie to ourselves. You know, that's something certainly. And again, in my, in my life, I've been aware of that as humans, been aware of that individually and just getting more and more clear about my level of integrity, trying to raise it every day and being clear about things and not lying to myself, just, just, and it's just such a slippery road to, to again, you know, a trading career blown up or bearings bank being blown up, different huge banks in the past being blown up because of these types of actions. Yeah, absolutely. You know, one thing we always talk about is, you know, is, is failures or mistakes. That's obviously a mistake. Any other failure that you, that, that you'd like to share or, or any other, you know, mindset around, you know, how you've, you know, really, and as a trader failed so often and then still won so much. Right. So, so you know, how you, how you consider those things, Garth? Yeah. So failure something, I, I wouldn't necessarily call it as Failure, like just sticking with trading, because yeah. you're just going to losing money on a trade is not failure. That's just part of the process, right? Exactly. Like nobody bats a hundred. Yeah. Right. It, so it's just learning to deal with that feedback, which is negative when you lose money. Yeah. But yeah. being able to try to bounce back and realize that that's just part of the part of the game, and that's tough early on because yes. you know early on when you get these setbacks, and I, and, I, and this may be true for any business, not just. The business of trading when you when you get that early feedback that this isn't working you know for whatever reason i've lost money in my student works my first summer yeah. or yeah. i lost money on my you know early my first three months of trading i'm down yeah and you you wonder it's like maybe i'm not cut out for this maybe i've chosen the wrong profession and so that stress of making a a mistake you know classified as losing money or something not going the way that you planned it to go. Right. Um, you don't have the uh, the foresight that you have after you've been doing it for a few years that that's just part of the the process, right? Like the somebody the, going back to a baseball analogy, like a hitter going into a slump, you know, the first slump that you go into, that's when you start questioning that hey, maybe I'm never going to come out of this. Yes. But if you've been around for 10 years, you realize that slumps happen and that you can come out of them yeah. right and that it's just part of it and so you've been in them and more importantly you've come out of them yeah. so it's a different uh I, w- I wouldn't you know just going back to failures or successes it's it gets a little easier to deal with setbacks we'll call them instead of failures or yeah. you know, setbacks the more setbacks you've come out of the first one feels like it's career ending yes but, you know the 10th one or the 100th one you know, it's just, okay, it's, it's, it's a nuisance, right? Nobody yeah. likes going through it. Yeah. 
Yeah. But it's, uh, you know, I'd say that's probably the main, the main lesson. And I would say the other uh, factor, like big mistakes, you know, is it the big mistakes and the worst mistakes aren't always the same, right? I think the differentiating factor is whether they're consequential or not. Like I've made some bad mistakes, but they were early on in my career. Right. And, um, you know, kind of inconsequential. Right. right. The one, the, the mistakes that are career ending are the ones that are the ones that you have to worry about. So they, that, that may be, maybe a small mistake. Right. right. Yeah. <laughs> Such as a small mistake we were just talking about of, you know, a momentary lack of integrity. Yeah. Right? In, in, in a, in a trade that you should have reported that something went wrong. Yes. You know, like student, like just taking it back to student work or something like that first summer of losing money. Right. It, felt consequential at the time, but yes. what was, what was the outcome? You know, I had to borrow $10,000 to pay for my final year of school. Right. Right. You know, that was consequential at the time. Right. But in the grand scheme of things, you know, it was paid off the debt and yeah. kept going. What it, it didn't, you know, it wasn't career limiting. Right. And even better, you actually came back, did really well you know, and, and, and again, uh, you know, became friends with a bunch of these friends, et cetera, yeah. all those sorts of things, you know, you want, you know, so, yeah. so, and, and by the way, I'm not surprised as well as you reframe failure because, you know, failure to me is just stopping, you know, you know, like that's, that's what failure is. So, um, well, and even just going back you know, to that, to that experience, it was like, you, you, you could honestly feel that at the end, you'd look back at all the mistakes that you'd made. And it's, it's almost like, uh, are you a golfer? Yes. So I'm a golfer too. I go back at the end of the round as a, if I made that putt, if yeah. I just didn't, uh, you know, I, I should have <laughs> had this one. It looked out. I should have had the three footer. And so yeah. you may end up with a score of, uh, you know, 82, yeah. but in your mind, it's like, I could have shot a 76. Yeah. Right? It's not how it works, but I it's, know <laughs> it's not how it works, but, but we the, think that, yeah. But at the end of this, that summer, that was, yeah. you know, such a tough experience. Yeah. Um, I thought like, okay, if I did this, if yeah. I did that, you know, that would have, you know, this was the one situation that really caused me the most issues. If I just correct that, I can come back and, you know, probably make a profit. And, yeah. You know, making those adjustments and coming back for, you know, subsequent years, you know, it turned out to be the right thing to do because it was just like tuition isn't free. I just paid my tuition yes. you know, in, in that first year. Yeah. And uh, to leave after that would just be, um, you know, just be a waste at that point. Yeah. And so, so I, I know I'd be remiss. Uh, this is only something I learned from, from your book is, is, is obviously your huge day and a uh, hundred million dollar trading day. So maybe you could, you know, explain that to our, to our leaders. And, and I know that had a whole lot to do with the 2008 mortgage crisis, et cetera. Yeah. So that was definitely the certain days that, uh, that you remember. I, I remember forget. days of being down a comparable amount, but, uh, oh, wow. but uh, of course I left those out of the book. Uh, <laughs> The, uh, maybe not quite that much, but that, that day was, uh, pretty spectacular. It was the middle of the financial crisis and, you know, people who you try to describe what it was like to trade through that, um, who've never traded through a financial crisis who are used to, you know, maybe a little bit of volatility, you know, until you've traded through a financial crisis and experienced liquidity gaps and market movements, it's, you know, to the extent that what happened back in 2007. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's, it's, you just have to kind of be there to be able to really understand, but it was in, in the depths of the crisis, we had some, a particular f whole fund itself that was dedicated 
to the mortgage market and right. uh, to, to the mortgage crisis. And we had a lot of bets on and credit default swaps that were betting that mortgages were going to um, continue to come under pressure. Uh, our focus was a little more on the commercial mortgages than the residential mortgages, which okay. were very popular at the time as a popular short. I think the, yeah. the movie, The Big Short, was yes. was Absolutely. about residential mortgages, but there was a similar dynamic going on in the commercial, in the commercial space. mortgage market. So okay. uh, we had that and we just, that was, we didn't necessarily, weren't able to lock in everything on that day, but it's just the the pressure of you know, every decision you make, talk about consequential decisions, like you literally think for 10 seconds of what you're going to do. And it's the difference of, you know, 10 or $20 million because the market's just moving and gapping. And, you know, from a trading perspective, you really, this is when it becomes, you know, you can throw out your quant skills and it's just, you know, person against person and, you know, dealing with the, the idea that I just did a trade and it, it immediately cost me millions of dollars. You know, you could have always got a better price. You could have got a worse price. Right. Just having to deal with, um, you know, very adverse trading decisions was, uh, you know, you know, the outcome that particular day was good, but I've been on the other side of those too. <laughs> right. It's right. Definitely, uh, you know, different than normal trading. There's not this, this idea of trading stocks. Oh, I'll just buy and sell, and it cost me a penny to get in and out. Right. It's very different in crisis, especially in in the credit market and in the credit derivatives market. It's it can be a because uh, there are very few people on both sides of the trade. Is that why? Is that is that what causes that? Well, sometimes there's nobody on the other side of the trade, and that's, yeah. that's when the liquidity pockets really, really are bad. And so, what you know, it, you know, this gets maybe too too de- detailed for for people who are not in the industry. But there's not continuous liquidity, mm-hmm. whether that's in any market, whether it's stocks, bonds. FX commodities. And when you go through these column liquidity pockets, it's not like, oh, I just want to get out of the trade. I'm going to cut my loss. Or right. I want to take profit or something. You, there has to be somebody on the other side of the trade, right? right. Trading is trading, right? right. <laughs> I give you this, you give me that. We set the, set the price. And sometimes um, if you're on the right side of the trade, you can be a liquidity to provider, right? Remember, uh, remember trading places, Yes, yes. With, with um, Dan Aykroyd. Eddie Murphy, yes. They're in the orange juice pit, right? It's a good mo- good movie for people who want to kind of understand how this- It's an old movie. You can work. go back and watch it on YouTube. Yep. <laughs> they, uh, they, I think they're coming out with a second one, actually. Another- Oh, wow. Movie. Okay. I've heard. Anyway, they, they were in the orange juice pit and, you know, everybody was one direction. And once they realized they were wrong, the only liquidity provider was Eddie Murphy and Dan Aykroyd. Right. But- they at that point they were the liquidity provider, so they could basically set their price because there was hundreds of other traders that had to, you know, dump their orange juice futures at at the same time. Right, and that's, you know, it's a story, it's a movie, but those conditions happen in real markets, not just the orange juice pit, not right. just in, in fiction, but when any market is completely you know, sent one direction or everybody's got the same position when uh, the tide turns and when the momentum changes, they have to trade with somebody. If everybody's already got the position on, there's nobody left to trade with. So in those, in that situation, we were fortunate enough because we were short credit and everything was exploding. We were the ones who were able to supply that back into the market and be pretty much being able to name our price to be able to get out because everybody was panicking having to cover their 
cover their positions. And right. that's part of trading, which, you know, there's, a, there's a, the industry has gotten a lot more quant focused. Everybody's got to understand, you know, the quants, what the quants are doing, math models, you know, statistic models, but there's still, you know, being able to model liquidity is not easy. And mod, and a lot of these quant models that operate on continuous liquidity, you know, they break down. Don't work in those circumstances. Yes. So you you asked about that day. That was just an example of how markets can break down. And, you know, when you're looking, it's not just the analysis that goes into the trade. Is this a a buy or a sell? It's, you know, when do I buy it and when can I sell it? Yes. Have to factor in. Right. Right. No, that's uh, really, really fascinating. Um, And I know one of the things is, is you you spoke about, and there's so much psychology around trading, you know, and I, and I know a lot of our leaders as well are, are traders, you know, it's, there's no question that there, that, that that's a a big change in the market, as you know, Uh, more and more young people are trading. So what sort of, what sort of advice would you give them or, or, or on, especially on the psychology of trading? So um, this is a, this is a good question. I have, uh, as I mentioned, I've got an 18 year old who's, who, the day he turned 18, he opened up a, I think it was a Weeble account and Robinhood, yeah, yeah. and he's yeah. the money that he had made from you know, <laughs> being a uh, a bus boy. He had a few few thousand bucks saved, and but yeah. he put a few hundred into this account. He's like, I'm trading, Dad. All right. And so some of the advice that I'm giving him was, <laughs> you know, for for new traders, it's you know, there's a, there's no one way to do it, right? right. You're not going to be Warren Buffett, right? Yeah. And given that you're trying to trade as opposed to invest, you know, you're probably better off doing certain things than others. Like, don't try to go through a company's annual report and figure out its long-term position in the industry, its long-term competitive edge and cost structure and its management if you're planning on selling the position the next day. Right. Right. That's not trading, that's investing. And that's a totally, you know, good way to invest money. But if you want to learn how to trade, you know, the fundamentals don't really matter. And this comes down to the psychology a little bit. So don't, you know, worry about being a value investor. Most of the types of people who are trying to buy value stocks aren't doing it to trade them. They're buying them because there's a long-term momentum. A company's gone out of favor for whatever reason, and they're expecting it to come back over the long-term. Right. So if you're going to trade, I was saying, I was suggesting to my Son, go look for momentum stocks. Momentum is a very proven strategy and momentum is, you know, lots of different definitions, but mainly it's a stock that's going up will continue to go up. Right. And so if it's 12 month performance is positive, you know, it's got momentum and you could look at three month momentum, 12 month momentum, you know, so look for stocks that are going up and try to catch a, try to catch a wave. Right. Um, Don't try to pick a bottom. Right. Um, Because picking bottoms is, is a lot tougher. Yes. <laughs> you know, catching a wave, I'm not saying catching a wave is easy, yes. but you've got a better chance, especially if you're trying to trade and get in and out in the same day or a, a day or two. But, you know, that's just what to do and how to find things to trade. But then there's a question of risk management. And this is where a lot of people break down early traders for somebody who's trying to get into it is you want to stay in the game, right? right? You don't, if you, if you put your 250 bucks or your thousand bucks into your Robinhood account, if you lose it all, it's like the game's over, right? right. Until you until you refund the account. Right. But if you want to stay in the game, you have to control your losses. Right. And that's tough for people because, you know, there is this expectation of especially new traders that come in is I want to make money, right? I, I don't want to take a loss. If I take a loss, I may never get it back. 
Right. But, you know, they're very, they're quick to take the gains. Oh, I, I made, I think he made 30% overnight on Dogecoin, right? Yeah. I was super happy. Yeah. But then he's down something on uh, another trade. And so I'm just going to hang on. It's like, but that's the wrong way to do it. Then your trade turns into an investment. So the risk management psychology that I was trying to give him was a process. Right. And just stick with your process. And then you can't be upset with yourself. Right. Right. You can adjust your process if it doesn't work, but you don't have the anxiety and the stress of I'm underwater in this position. Maybe I've made a mistake. Just follow your process. And so what I said to him was, you know, no matter what you buy, just if you take a 10% loss, like if it goes down 10% for whatever reason, just get out. Yeah. Yeah. Just sell. Right. And then you can, it's not going to turn into a hundred percent loss or 50% loss. So inevitably, you know, 10% is still not a, small loss to take but right when you're trading when you're trading in dogecoin and some of these things that are moving <laughs> up and down a lot that's you know that's that's a maybe a day's volatility that's inside a day's band of of trading and just and, and I'm trying to tell them is it's like there will be that day when it goes down 10 percent and you sell it and within an hour it bounces right back up right but right. that's just part of what happens because there will also be the day that you sell it at 10 percent and it goes down another 50. Yes. And to stay in the game and by taking these smaller losses, then if you have this rule, it's like wherever I buy it, no matter where I get in, if I lose 10%, I'm out, then you don't have to stress about it going down. You just follow your process. It takes a little bit of emotional control and you still have to execute on it and not come up with yourself. Oh, I'm going to follow that process, except for this time. Yeah. That doesn't work. But I'd I'd say also start small, right? Right. Start, start big. Don't, you know, because there is a, you have to figure out a lot of these things on your own, what your risk tolerance is, whether you're even happy trading momentum type stocks. Like some mm-hmm. people inevitably like buying stuff at lower prices. Like, you know, you, there's not a right way to do this, but you're not trading if you're doing that necessarily, if you're trying to day trade. But, right, you know, I cover this a little bit in the book about you could have two people who are completely capable, but their personality is one where they just like buying low prices. They like buying it after it's gone down 25%. Right. As opposed to something after it's gone up 25%. Right. right? Very different types of um, emotional demands on you to, to do those trades. Like you may think of it as being the same, but there's very, it, it, it's different. And certain people are more, their personality is conducive to buying the, buying the one that's gone up 25%, riding the momentum. Right. Others are the ones that like looking for the bargain, right? They want it cheap. Yeah. They want to yeah. buy it, try to buy it at the low. They don't want to buy it at the high. Yeah. And so just picking the right trading style that matches your personality could be the difference between success and failure. So it's it's complicated. So as much advice as I'd like to give somebody starting out, it's there's a lot of factors that go into it. But just to summarize, I'd say focus on the losses more than the gains Yeah. and develop a process and stick to it. And if you need to change the process, then go ahead and change the process, but don't just create the process on the fly. For sure. And start small, you know, so, so, you know, just cause there's going to be a lot of learning, right? So yeah, absolutely. Well, that's awesome. So, so as you went from like that university student, what did you need to change about yourself, you know, over, over the three decades in your career? I don't know if I really had to change anything uh, to speak that where there was deficiencies. I still think I'm the same person as I was when I was, you know, university student in my late teens or early twenties. 
but it probably had obviously a lot more recognition of, you know, what it takes to be successful and, you know, you know, much more serious now than I was in university. Right. But I'd say the thing that was surprising that I had, it's not necessarily having to change, but had to uh, adapt to uh, that I didn't think was going to be part of the plan was this alert, continuous learning. Okay. Um, you have this idea that, oh, I'm just going to go, I'll go to college, <clears throat> I'll go to university, I'll learn my stuff. And then when I start the job, it's just about doing, I'll just do the job. Yeah. But you don't just do the job. You have to learn and continue to learn and continue to expand. And so the learning that I did in school was very different than the learning you do in work, but it's still learning. And there's not this idea. I remember at one point when I was in university, I thought that, Oh, I'll just be able to not coast after, you know, university, but I'll just work hard, just working hard, you know, that, that's what you do when you have a, a you know, just a, a job. If you want to, you know, if you're trying to operate a business or, you know, really develop a career, it's like you have to keep learning and keep yeah. reading and keep, you know, understanding and figuring out how things work. And so I'd say that the thing I had to change was get rid of this idea that the learning was over yeah, and, um, you know, keep that up. Yeah. And actually one thing I haven't asked you, and I think it's, it's, it's worthwhile is, is just, you know, sort of what is the life of a, a hedge fund, you know, trader or a portfolio manager, you know, work-wise maybe in your twenties, thirties, forties, you know, that sort of thing. What's, what's, what, what's it take, you know, uh, capacity wise, work-wise. It's uh, it, t- it takes a lot, right. It's yeah. not something that is, it's not a, uh, even though the markets are open, maybe, I don't know, eight, depending on what markets you're trading, eight hours a day, mm-hmm. um, the job doesn't stop. Like, I, yeah. you know, the, there's this there's this little perception that, okay, well, I, I like trading because when the markets are done, I'm yeah. done, right? I, I, you know, the markets close at four, I can go do all these other things. And, you know, I don't mind getting up early, you know, so I can just work the markets beforehand and then, uh, yeah. you know, my day's done. It's It really doesn't end then. And yeah. it's a lot of it is, planning, reading, you know, because when the trading is trading day is on, you're focused on trading all the other stuff that you have to do to be able to trade effectively, whether it's, you know, look at all the different risks in your book, do all your analysis, all the reading of research um, that's out there that happens afterwards. So it, it does. um, There, there was a point in my early on in the career where it really was all consuming. Right. I think that's, the same for any entrepreneur or anybody sure. that's in a business. It's just like, that is your life. Yeah. And um, there was an element of that for me. And I think there's an element of that for a lot of people. It gets a little easier as you, uh, you know, get a little bit, you, when, when you rely a little bit more on, uh, you know, some of that accumulated knowledge, you don't have to keep getting uh, yes. learning over and over again. So it gets a little bit easier when you, when you get older mm-hmm. um, or you've been doing it a long time. But, uh, you know, a typical day I'll, I'll, I'll get up at six, six 30, um, jump on my Bloomberg, you know, see what's gone on overnight, see what's gone on in Europe, what's gone on in Japan, you know, check out a few emails, you know, get into the office by, you know, my, my commute's pretty short. It's like yeah. eight minutes for me to get to the office Yeah, I'll be in the office by seven 30, um, start talking to the team. We have a night desk that was there, that's, that may be there. We have a, de- a European desk, get the download of what happened o- o- overnight, and then just start trying to figure out what's what's going to happen that day, what the impacts. A lot of times we have numbers at 8.30 in the morning, economic numbers that often drive the 
markets. Sometimes it's something that happened overseas that's driving the markets. Right. And then, um, you know, once the trading's done, you know, that's when you, you kind of get back into, into groups and talk about what's happened, do, uh, do other meetings, other calls, you know, so these days my day is, you know, you know, done a little bit earlier than in the, in my twenties and thirties where, right. you know, once I got home then I just get back on and keep reading research, you know, now right. I, I, as a, as a, you know, having done, I don't have to stay quite on top of it, uh, as much as I did earlier. Right. And I'm sure as well, sometimes people will summarize things, I imagine, right. You know, at your level here, yes. you know, here, Garth, you know, and here's the numbers and, you know, but at that point you're putting together number of packages for more senior people in your organization. Exactly. Now, now I'm the recipient of those reports as opposed to the producer. Exactly. Exactly. Right. Which, which is, uh, which is great. So which, seniority, which is seniority and works. And, and I think a lot of it is also just, you develop a filter over time. And I think this is the same for any business as for sure. You, you know, you kind of figure out what's important, what's not important and learning. Once you figure out something that's not important, you don't spend any time on it. Yes. It's not, you know, it's like there's certain things that would be nice to know, yeah. but are not needed to know. Yeah. And when you early on in your career, you don't necessarily know the difference. Good point. You know, later on you do. And yeah. so I just don't waste time on stuff that's irrelevant. Yeah. Anymore. And so what about habits? Any habits key habits that some of our leaders would want to steal from you, Garth? Well, I would say, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a question of just being consistent with your approach to the, to the career. It's like, mm -hmm. it's, you know, being, whether it's persistence in learning, whether it's persistence in trying to get the, get to the right answer. It, it's, it's, it's really not a question of getting it right the first time, you know, mm -hmm. that's not, you know, it'd always be great to get it right the first time. Right. But it's doing, you know, having a whatever it takes attitude, I think, is what's what helped me. Right. Um, and it wasn't always easy. Like it came a lot easier to other people, certain things, but just not uh, having that grit to not let go of the end goal and doing whatever you need to do to to get there, whether it's going back to school because you need to go yeah. back to school or whether it's, you know, spending that extra time reading that research report or making sure that you you know, really understand something at a deep level as opposed to on a cursory level. Uh, I think those are some good habits. And, you know, one, one, uh, one expression that, you know, I learned a long time ago, which I think is uh, applicable to a lot of different things is you ever heard of the expression to teach is to learn twice. Yes. Yes. Love that. And, you know, you think, you know, something, but you take, you know, trying to explain it to somebody else. And when they ask sometimes what the most basic questions are, yeah. You know, unless you have a really good answer back for them, you don't really understand it. Yeah. Right. So to understand something at a very deep level, you have to also understand it at a, uh, you know, at a, at a higher level. Yeah. And, um, you know, so I think, you know, as a habit, one of the things I try to do is whether I, you know, I'm doing it formally, like doing some sort of teach in and, you know, explaining something to somebody or just writing an article about something. It okay. forces a discipline on, you know, the process of understanding that uh, you may not have if you just, oh, I get it. I get it. Right. Yeah. You know, to have to explain it and understand it and be have to withstand questioning. Yes. Um, is a different level. So I think that's a good habit for people to get into is just, you know, if you're going through the trouble of learning it a little, you know, spend the extra time and really learn it. Yeah. 
I have the, I have that habit as well. I got told that years ago and, and I, you know, as soon as I'm reading something or, you know, then I, then, and again, I test myself and sometimes I find myself wanting Garth, <laughs> so, but, but, but that's great, right? Oh, I don't really have a full grasp of this. Okay. Try again, you know? So, and then, then, you know, and when we take it out of our head, a lot of times we'll find that you know, oh, gee, this isn't so clear. And then, you know, and, and, but then also a lot of times in those conversations, we actually can figure it out better too. Right. Even just talking about it. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So before I ask my final question, is there anything else like that you'd like to share? I know I, again, I read your book and I had a, a few questions about that. Anything else that you think would be important for our leaders to understand? I think the, um, there, there's a tendency to uh, just for some people to just go the way that gravity is taking them or mm-hmm. a momentum is taking them in a certain direction with their career. And it's right. not always the the right thing to do. Um, you know, it, doing the work up front of aligning your natural skill set or your natural capabilities and your natural advantage. And everybody's got something. Yes. Right. Uh, just to figure out what that is and try to find a career or a job or a business opportunity that is in sync with that is worth the time. Yeah. Because not everybody's suited for every, every job, mm-hmm. but everybody's suited for something. Yeah. Right. And, you know, doing the self-assessment and there's a lot of different personality assessments that are free and available for people to take thinking about, you know, what do I really, what am I good at? And what am I not so good at? What opportunities leverage that as opposed to inhibit it? Like if you, if you hate public speaking, right, you can't stand getting up in front of somebody. Don't think that just because you get a job, you're automatically going to get better at it. Yeah, for sure. Certainly. And there are people that hate it and they become good at it, but you're, you're swimming against the tide, right? You know, you're, you're better off, you know, at least early on finding something that is more in your in your wheelhouse of your comfort zone, because when you're comfortable, that's when you can perform the best, right? If you're constantly stressed and you're doing the wrong thing and you hate it and you're doing it just because you think you should, or because your friends are doing it, yeah, you know, it's the wrong reason. So do the self-assessment. There's plenty of opportunities for everybody. And if you, you know, the, the, the highest chance of success you have is when you align what you're good at with what you uh, like to do. Yeah, no, and and certainly that's something uh, very apparent in you know my reconnection with you is is you really find this work fascinating, right? You're really interested. That's that's you know that stands out, and and again something that I see consistently again with our most successful alumni is they love what they do. So so it's 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 interesting. It's like you know again if you were no longer were working at you know Triple I Capital Management, you'd still be interested in the markets. You'd still be trading the markets, and not just as a way to you know, make money, but also just because that's something you're passionate about, I can imagine. Yeah. Like you've got two magazines on the, on the table, you know, are you going to pick up a sports illustrated or, yeah. you, pick up, you know, uh, Forbes, right? Yes. Yeah, exactly. No, those are, and those are great. Those are great tests. Right. And, you know, to sort of say, Hey, what, what, what interests me? So final question, Gareth, when you think of a leader of tomorrow, what comes to mind? So you're not looking for a name as much as you are no. characteristics. Yeah, right? characteristics. Yeah. So I, I don't have um, I don't have a name for you. Because yes. No. By nature of the leader of tomorrow, we don't know who that's going to be, right? Absolutely. Um, I would think that there's probably uh, a few characteristics that I would I would focus on. They're 
probably highly technical, but also, as we talked about before, competent when it comes to, you know, EQ mm-hmm. um, and soft skills. Right. So it's 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 the marriage of the, it's almost the yin and yang, right? The, yes. The left brain, the right brain. Yeah. I think the leaders of tomorrow are not the ones that are just purely quants and not yeah. the ones that are just purely column salespeople or yeah. charismatic. You have yeah. to have both skills. Yes. Um, similarly, they have to be creative, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and especially in this world of AI and everything being automated, be able to think of think of things differently but also be able to follow a process, right? Yeah. Like being creative and not being able to follow a process to get something through, whether it's a new business, a new technology, you know, I think you have to be able to marry those two. And, you know, also on the side of uh, probably have to be aggressive, right. right? Have to be aggressive with their career, have to be aggressive about meeting people, aggressive about um, finding connections, people who are not going to, you know, just let something happen to them. They're going to be the ones that make it happen. But at the same time, they have to do it in an, in a way that's, you know, ethical. Right. Right. Like there's a lot of people that try to cut corners and, um, you know, you know, to that are aggressive, but in a way that, you know, is compromising to others. You know, the, I think the real leaders of tomorrow, the ones that are going to be, you know, have sustainable businesses and sustainable careers are able to marry both of them an aggressive personality uh, towards achieving their goals, but also do it in a way that's, you know, ethically sound. Just People underestimate the role of ethics. Oh yeah. We just I love focus it. on winning and losing and um, it catch it. I can tell you, Chris, I've seen it so many times, like just small compromises lead to bigger compromises and it yeah. in the long run, it catches up to. I just love your answer. Um, you know, and it's, it's holding two diverse things at the same time two conflicting things at the same time. Right. And that's actually what, what successful people can do. It doesn't surprise me that you've, you know, you gave three of those things, you know, the yin and the yang, the yin and the yang, but, you know, and, and being able to marry them all and, uh, to, to be really, you know, again, successful in the world, really powerful in the world and make a difference. So it's just awesome. So Garth, thanks so much for, for, for making time for our leaders. I know, I know this going to, uh, um, this, this uh, podcast is going to be listened to a lot and I'm very, very appreciative of your time. Thank you, Chris. Thanks for uh, having me on the show and uh, thank you for everything that you've done for me over the years. Oh, well, uh, my, my pleasure. So uh, looking forward to uh, staying connected and we will talk to you soon. Sounds great. Thank thanks you so much. Bye-bye. Hey leaders. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Bye now you are aware that we work with ambitious students every single year to not only help them run their first successful business, but to further their development as a leader and give them an unfair advantage in the future over their counterparts. It's why starting now and only for the next few weeks, we'll be on campuses across Ontario, Quebec, and the East Coast interviewing students who think they have what it takes to start their first business and get started down their path of entrepreneurship. If you think you have what it takes or know someone who might be interested, visit leaderspodcast.ca slash apply and start your application process today. Once again, it's leaderspodcast.ca slash apply. And I can't wait to see you on the other side.